You may have heard the word Eruf. It gets into the news every once in a while. I'll soon tell you why. But first let me explain what an Eruf is. And so the Hebrew word Eruv means, comes from the word La'aref, to mix. To mix or to join. And it's a halachic concept. And there were a number of things that our sages prohibited, um, rabbinic law that the sages prohibited in different ways on Shabbat and holidays. And um, they used the system of a roof, which was essentially using food, um, to make a ceremony with food that allows you, um, kind of creates a loophole in the law that allows you to do whatever you need to do. So there are a couple different types of a roof. However, a roof is the term a roof is usually used for something that's not technically a roof, but for a wall around a neighborhood or a town. Let me explain. First, what exactly is an Eruv? So there are three types of Eruv, um, which each involve three different sets of Jewish law. For one type of Eruv is called Eruv Tavshilin, Eruv of cooked food, and essential of cooking. And essentially, it is forbidden when um, you have a holiday, a yamtiv, and the next day is Shabbos. So you have, let's say, Rosh Hashanah is on a Thursday, Friday, going straight into a Shabbos, or a holiday is on a Friday and goes straight into Shabbos. So you need to be able to cook for Shabbos. So you're not supposed. So our sages said, do not cook on Friday on yamtiv for Shabbos, because then that will take away from the, that you're not supposed to cook on Yom Tov for the next day. You're not supposed to prepare on the holiday for a day after the holiday. It will take away from the holiness of the holiday. However, you need food for Shabbos. So what they said is if you start cooking before Shabbos, before Yom Tov, before the holiday begins, you start cooking on Thursday or on Wednesday, if the holiday is a two-day holiday, you start cooking on Wednesday or Thursday, then you're allowed to continue cooking on Friday for Shabbos. So what you have to do is you have to first have cooked food ready on Wednesday or Thursday before the holiday begins. And you have to say, this food will be the Eruv, will be what essentially starts my cooking for the holiday. And then once you have you put aside that food, and now that you've started before the holiday, you're allowed to continue cooking on Friday, even though it's Yom Tov. Normally on Yom Tov you are allowed to cook for that day. Right? We do cook on Yom Tov. And so you're allowed to cook, and that allows you to then cook for Shabbos. That's one kind of Eruv. A second kind of Eruv, which I'm also going to deal with very briefly, is called the Eruv Tchumin. What's an Eruv Tchumin? So, rabbinic law prohibits a person from traveling long distances on Shabbos and Yom Tov. Um, back in the day, before, long before we had cars, um, the most common form of travel was by foot. That was the most common form of travel. Read any account of the way people traveled in, old, in earlier times. Um, maybe wealthy people had horses or carriages, but most people traveled by foot. They traveled from town to town by foot. They would walk for days. In fact, in um, the Talmud, there's a standard distance that a person can walk in a day, which is 10 parsa, about 20 miles is the standard distance a person would walk in a day. That's a long, that's, you could walk about 20 miles a day. Um, but it, people would walk for weeks and months. It was common. That's how you got from place to place. People walked. That's the way people got around. 
They kept them in shape. I mean, even in your village, there was no cars. You didn't take a horse to get to the, your neighbor or to get to the store, to get to the butcher. You would go, you would, go, you would walk. And that's the way people got around. I mean, they didn't have... They didn't really have groceries. Hard to imagine a world without groceries. But there were no groceries. You made everything at home. There were no groceries. Even your fruits and vegetables, you grew yourself usually. All you had to buy was the meat from the butcher and the baker, the bread from the baker. Because a lot of the, a lot of them didn't have ovens for baking bread or the wheat. Yeah, flour. Yeah. Oh, they had juice. They had, they had a pretty sophisticated way of making wine. They didn't drink juice, though. But anyway, we're off topic. So... So everyone used to walk from place to place. Our sages didn't want you spend, to spend the whole Shabbos walking. So they made a rule that you cannot walk outside of your town more than a mill, which is about a half a mile, a little more than a half a mile. You can't walk more than a half a mile outside of your town. A town is a built-up area. A built-up area that has homes every hundred feet or so. It's considered a town. Outside of that town... Um, you're not allowed to walk more than a mill on shops. So, however, they did make an exception. And they said, wherever, wherever, now that rule is relevant if you are in a small town or if you end up in the countryside somewhere. It, of course, is not relevant here in Los Angeles because if you start walking and you walk for 20 miles or even more, you still will not get out of town because we live in a very large built-up area. But in theory, if you are in a place that is a small village, you want to walk out of your village on Shabbos, you're not allowed to do so. You're not allowed to walk more than a half mile out of the village. And they used in all the Jewish villages, they would have markers up to here is the limit how far you can walk on Shabbos. So that people went on a Shabbos walk, they knew they couldn't walk further. What if you want to walk to the next town, and the next town is a mile away? What do you do? So they made a little loophole, in the law, when they made the law, and they said what you could do is, you could essentially say, instead of my base on Shabbos being in this town, and then I can walk a half a mile in every direction, I'm going to make my base for Shabbos halfway between the two towns. And if I make my base over there, I could walk a half a mile in each direction, I could walk from one town to the other. So you could set your opening place for Shabbos wherever you want. You could set it in your town. You could set it in the other town. You could set it halfway between both towns. Wherever your base for Shabbos is, you could go a mill, which is about a half a mile, in each direction. So, who made all these laws? These were laws, very good question. These laws were made by the, we have a lot of what's called rabbinic law. In other words, rules made not in the Torah, but made by the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council in later times. The Erevin was made in the days of King Solomon. So this is going back um, about 2,900 years. So we've been doing this for a very long time. But this was made by the Jewish Supreme Council, known as the Sanhedrin. It was not originally in the commandments given by Moses. But we still have to keep all these rules. They're still binding on us. So, um, so a person could make, so how do you set your place for the beginning of Shabbos? So the way you do it is you have to set food. 
you set down food in a place, that's your place for Shabbos. You don't have to actually be there at the beginning of Shabbos. You just have to go before Shabbos, set food, hang it from a tree so the animals don't get to it, and um, say, over here, this is going to be my base for Shabbos. I can then go a mill, or a little more than a half mile in each direction. And so if there's a town, two towns a mile away from each other, I can walk from one town to the other town on Shabbos. So that's a second kind of Eruv. There's a third kind of Eruv. The third kind of Eruv involves carrying on Shabbos. And this is a little bit more complicated, and this is what I'm going to focus on today, because this is what most people are familiar with when we say Eruv and we talk about building an Eruv. The Torah tells us we're not allowed to do work on Shabbos. We're forbidden from do- doing work on Shabbos. Not only are we forbidden from doing work on Shabbos, we have in our tradition specifically 39 forms of labor or creative work that are forbidden on Shabbos. In an earlier class, you may recall, maybe a year or so, we um, went through those 39, I gave you charts, with the 39 specific prohibitions on Shabbos. So actually of the 39 prohibitions, 38 of them are creative work, such as planting, harvesting, building, lighting fires, cooking, or just some of them. One of them, though, is, does not involve created work, yet the Torah forbids it. And it's probably the most important or the, most, um, the one that impacts you the most on Shabbos. And that is a prohibition of carrying. You're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. Now, the biblical prohibition of carrying on Shabbos forbids you from carrying from a enclosed area, an enclosed private area, to a public thoroughfare, or called Rishus Harab. You're not allowed to carry from an enclosed private area into a public thoroughfare. You're also not allowed to carry from a public road into an enclosed private area. Both are forbidden. And also within a public area, you're not allowed to carry either. All those are forbidden by Torah. So our sages, at the same time, they made these other prohibitions, these other rules of Erov. They made a further prohibition. They said, if you have a large enclosed area with lots and lots of different homes within that enclosed area, say you have back then, they used to have courtyards, um, and they used to build with courtyards. Here you have a few on a, on a lot in this neighborhood. On a few places in the world they have that. But in, in ancient times they used to build in courtyards. Um, and kind of where you had a couple homes within a courtyard. Or for that matter, if you have an apartment building, would be the same thing. Where you have a lot of different residences within a single enclosed area. So our sages said also, one should not carry from residence to residence within that enclosed, enclosed area, nor should one carry in the jointly owned open area between the residences. So you have essentially, um, or even we have them over here, um, an enclosed gated community. It's totally enclosed, closed by a fence, totally covered by a fence, totally enclosed. Nevertheless, you cannot carry from one enclosed um, you cannot carry from one uh, part of the, from one residence to another residence, or within the streets of that gated community that are jointly owned. That was a rabbinic, 
prohibition that was added on almost 3,000 years ago to the biblical prohibition of not carrying from an enclosed area to a public thoroughfare, from a public thoroughfare to a closed area within a public thoroughfare. So that was the addition that they made. However, yes, Debbie? Well, I guess you could ask about all 39 prohibitions. Why can't you do any of these 39 <laughs> prohibitions on Shabbos? And so, firstly, these are the, these are the ways God defined work for us or creative work. Oh, work. We do this to recount how God created the world um, and rested, um, worked for six days and rested on the seventh day. That's why we don't work on the seventh day. Um, and so we don't do any creative, God created, we don't do any creative work. So we're allowed to do, we're allowed to move things around, they'll do hard work that doesn't involve anything creative. We have 39 creative prohibitions. Um, the only one that I mentioned before is not creative is carrying. And God forbade us from carrying as well, as we said, from an enclosed area to a public thoroughfare, from a public thoroughfare to an enclosed area, um, as well as... Um, God, for as well as within a public area. Um, that's not really, as I mentioned before, it's not really creative. God doesn't tell us why he forbade us from doing so on Shabbat, but our sages tell us it's supposed to remind us that the entire world is, so to speak, private, belongs to God, is owned by God. Nothing exists outside of, so anything that appears to be publicly owned and not privately owned, we don't carry there to remember how truly everything belongs to God. So it serves as a reminder. So like in many rules, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, thousands of years ago, expanded these rules. Many biblical rules were expanded um, in a commandment to our sages to extend what we call fences around the Torah. In other words, to make sure that we don't come um, close to transgressing a rule. So among the rules they expanded was that not only can you not carry from an enclosed area to a public road, you also cannot carry within a shared public area, uh, pro, uh, enclosed area, or from one home in an enclosed area to another home in an enclosed area. However, they made a loophole for this. When they made the rule, they said, you can if everybody has shared food. And so essentially what the of is, is you create shared food where everybody shares, you take it bit of food, you say this belongs to everyone, you put it in one place, in one home in the enclosed area. Now that everybody shares this food together, it becomes like a single property. And now they said you could carry within this enclosed area. So that is the era of this shared food. Um, traditionally, and we've had Arabs, as I'm going to soon explain, um, in most communities. And so traditionally, the, the food that we used was a matzah. The reason why we used the matzah is you only have to set the matzah as a shared food once a year. And the matzah lasts you for a year, right? Matzahs don't go stale. Yeah. That's the beauty of matzah, right? Matzah is the only food that never goes stale. You've got to keep it wrapped up correctly. Yeah, you know, in plastic and stuff. It will last you for a year. So that's what they always did. Okay, so if you have an enclosed area, you're allowed to carry within that enclosed area on Shabbat. If there's many residences in that enclosed area, you need to make this area of set aside food on behalf of everyone. Now, Jews historically lived in towns. 
lived in villages, lived in cities, in different places, and they wanted to be able to carry on chaps. Perhaps they want to be able to carry their children from home to home, be able to carry food or carry children to shul. They want to carry food. Most importantly, and this is very interesting, most people did not have um, usable ovens in their home. In other words, they had fires in their home, but um, not fires that really were large enough to bake bread, which is why most there were bakers in most towns, uh, or that were hot enough to bake bread. And also, they didn't have, really have fires that would stay burning, that were large enough that would stay burning all night until Shabbos afternoon. They would have, historically in many towns, they would have a Shabbos guy, in other words, a non-Jew who would come into their homes in the winter to light the fires up. How, so, but they wanted hot food on Shabbos. So they would make a pot of a stew before Shabbos, and they would put it on the fire, and they would want it to stay until the next day, that they could eat it the next day for lunch. And um, the Ashkenazic food is called chalant. You may have seen it before. Or um, the Sephardic call their food chamin. Um, the ingredients are a little different. The idea is the same. You put it up before Shabbos, and it stays till Shabbos afternoon, and you have this hot food that's very, very well cooked for Shabbos afternoon. By the way, the fellow who invented the crock pot invented the crock pot with the intention to be used for a challenge. That's why it was invented. So now because many people did not have large enough fires or did not want to use that much fuel that they would need in order to get a fire to burn until the morning, until the next day. So what they would do in many towns is the baker had a very, very big oven, very large oven, that would stay hot for a very, very long time. And so everybody would bring their chalant pot to the baker before Shabbos, put it in their oven, and then uh, uh, after services in the morning, they would, everyone would go to the baker and they would pick up their chalant pot hot chalam pot and carry it home. This was done in many, many communities. The problem, of course, is that you cannot carry in a public road. A public road you're not allowed to carry on, on chalams. So they couldn't carry their chalant. So there's a very simple solution. If the area is enclosed, you're allowed to carry. So it needs to be, and if it's enclosed, and then you have this food that joins everyone together into a single property, then you are indeed allowed to carry. So we had to come up with a way of enclosing the area around the town. So what do you do? So you have to build a fence around your town. You build a full fence around your town. Now your town is fully enclosed. It's an enclosed area. You have your town is now fully enclosed. You have an enclosed area. Then you make the Erev, meaning you take this bit of food, this matzah, and you say everybody is, this matzah belongs to everyone equally and it's going to be here on behalf of everyone. So we're all a single property. And in that way, you're allowed to carry on Shabbos within your town. So this was done historically in Jewish communities. They were able to make these fences around town. And they then made this Eruv. And that way they were able to carry within their towns on Shabbos. However, it starts... So the Eruv is actually the food. But with time, 
people began to refer to the fence around the town as the Eruv. The fence around the town is actually not an Eruv. The Hebrew word for fence is a Mechitza. But it, it's not an Eruv. But it became known as the Eruv. So when people speak of building the Eruv, they don't refer to the food that they're going to use to bring everybody together, but they're rather referring to the fence that they are building around town. That's, they, that's what they refer to as an Eruv. And so now, when building this fence, it gets a little bit complicated. Why? You, let's say you build a full fence around your town. You need a way to be able to get in and out of the town. How are you going to get in and out? You have a fence around it. If there's a full fence, it's totally surrounded. How do you get in and out? So the simple solution is you have gates. But gates are not always fully realistic, right? You can't always have gates. Um, on a road, you're going to have gates. You open it every time someone comes in. Unless you have a guard there, you have someone opening it. It's not always realistic to have gates on your road into town. So how do you make a full fence around your town? So the solution that our sages came up with is, instead of a gate, what you could do is you could have a doorway. If you have two doorposts and a ledge going over the doorposts, in that way you have a doorway. If you have a doorway, it's just as good. And so the rule is, and this is the rule that was originally made almost 3,000 years ago, that if you have a fence around your town and you have an opening up to 10 cubits or 15 feet about wide, that's okay. A break up to 15 feet is fine. If you have more than that, if you have a larger break than that, you need to make a doorway. In other words, you need to have a... Um, you need to have a... You need, you need to have um, uh, posts on both sides, and you need to have a, a, a pole on top, and that way you have a doorway, and that hits your fence, and your fence goes all the way around town. How high do the fences have to be? That's an excellent question. So for a fence to be considered um, valid, it needs to be 10 handbreadths, which is about three, 30, in, two and a half to three feet. So a little under three feet. So if it's that high, it's considered a fence, and that's enough you're allowed to carry within your area, within your town. And so around towns, they used to build these fences. These fences, of course, had other value as well because it also kept intruders out. It's good to have a fence around your town. Um, so they built these fences. And on what they had to do then, it wasn't just enough to have a fence. All the places where there were roads going in and out of town, they would have to build essentially a doorway going over the places where they were not able to build a fence. So in that way, so that way, the town became fully enclosed. So in most Jewish villages in Europe, this was widely done, and in the Middle East, this was widely done. Communities built Arabs around their town and allowed them to carry on Shabbos. Um, nobody bothered them. Nobody really cared if they built a fence around town. It's good for the town to have a fence around town. They used to build these fences. They used to build these doorways. They used to then also have people go around before Shabbos. They used to have volunteers from the community go around to check that the fence was up. Make sure it doesn't fall down. Sometimes fences can fall down. You've got to make sure that it's always up. It is always standing. 
With time, however, especially late 19th, early 20th century, Jews began to be urbanized. Jews began to be moving, moved to bigger cities. Here it already became a little bit more complicated. Try building a fence around the city. How do you do that? How do you build a fence around the city? So if they first started doing this in Europe, um, big cities in Europe like Vilna and Warsaw had fences built around the cities um, and they built fences and it was a mix of actual fencing and they would sometimes build doorways. What they realized is what you could do is you could have a lot of doorways. You could have a mile or two miles worth of doorways by putting poles, banging large poles into the ground and then running strings over those poles, you've essentially created doorways. So they could run a mile, two miles of doorways. How far you could run in doorways has become an, uh, an issue of debate among Jewish scholars. Some said you could run your whole fence doorways. Uh, most say that at least the majority of the fence needs to be a real fence. Um, but you could still run miles, if it's a large fence, a large town, you could run miles of doorways by running these poles and running strings over the pole and that way you fully with doorways and fencing you fully enclosed your town so with time they continued to build um, Arabs around towns around cities Jewish communities have been building these Arabs for a very long time and as we started building around cities things became more and more and more sophisticated more complicated um, sometimes became more difficult in Israel as the new state of Israel, as, the, as um, gradually the country built out in the last hundred years plus, um, all the towns and the cities, as they built up cities, together with the cities, they also would build eruvs around each city to make sure that the Jews living in the city were able to carry on Shabbos. If you go to Tel Aviv, there's an Eruv around it. You go to Jerusalem, there's an Eruv around it. Every single city in Israel today has an Eruv around it to allow you to carry. And then they have, they have this, fen this fencing around. And then, so it's an enclosed area. And then they have a, um, and then they, they would put a, that someone uh, make sure that there's food that jointly um, owned by everyone, that's, that joins everyone, and then you're allowed to carry within that town, within that city. So throughout Israel today, we have all these Eruvs. And so this was done again in Eastern Europe, it was very common in North Africa, throughout the Middle East, uh, throughout wherever Jews lived, we would make Eruvs. Generally, people didn't bother us too much. Let's take some questions. Yes, Debbie? Is that just an excuse to be able to carry? When you want to carry, or you don't want to it's a rule. In other words, the, 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 the sages made the rule. They made the rule to limit our ability to carry, but they also made a loophole. When they made the rule, they made it with this exception, a workaround so that you can carry. Right. So that you can carry. But remember, in a, in a unfenced area, in a unfenced area, we're forbidden from carrying entirely. Okay. Well, it's it's not what we want to do. In other words, Judaism is not about what Judaism is not about what we want to do. It's really about what God no, wants us to do. Either, either you don't carry, or or you make all these loopholes so you can carry. I, I don't know. I don't get it. 
Again, the rule was that in a fenced-off area, you are allowed to carry, and in a not-fenced area, you're not allowed to carry. So if you make it fenced-off, then you can carry. If you don't fence it off, then you cannot carry. It's a halachic process that we have to go through in order to allow ourselves to carry. You go to a town, though, that's not fenced-off, you would not be able to carry. Yes, Pamela? Now, once you have an air of, once you have an air of, you can carry anything. Well, we wouldn't carry a purse because we wouldn't carry money or cell phones on Shabbat because we don't use them at all on Shabbat. There are certain things that you would be able to carry. Sure. Mark, did you have a question? Well, where did this rabbinic council come up? How did they come up with all of these? They're unusual if you're not accustomed to it. In other yeah. words, um, if they're new, they're and not unusual. Right. For our people, they're not unusual because we've done, been doing this for 3,000 years. So uh, I don't, it might be unusual to someone who's not familiar with it, but to somebody whose ancestors have done it, which is true for all of us, someone whose ancestors have done it for 3,000 years, it's not unusual at all. Um, the Torah, again, gives us the prohibition of not carrying in a, pub, in a non-fenced-off area on Shabbat, um, which then gives us the ability to fence off areas. Um, how do you define a fenced-off area? So for most things in Judaism, we have very clear definition of what defines... There's a lot of things which you need fencing in Judaism for all sorts of different things um, in Jewish law. So we have standards. What, how big does a fence have to be? A fence has to... Standard fence is is um, 10 handbreadths, or it's just under three feet. So we have a standard size for fencing. Um, a doorway is considered part of a fence because you can't have a fence without a doorway, otherwise how are you going to get in and out? So that was kind of a standard that they created at the time. When they, and again, they, they made this, the, the prohibition that the sages made was not to carry within the fenced off area. Um, not to carry within a fenced-off area on Shabbat without making this, um, without making this um, food, this eruv. Um, but then the Torah requires us to f- only carry in fenced-off areas and define fenced-off area. Yes. Today, though, they were talking about putting in Yeah, so let me get to that. So here in the United States, and for that matter in other Western countries, things became a little more complicated. For one, we Jews don't live in shtetls anymore, um, or even in the larger cities. We lived in mostly Jewish neighborhoods. We don't live like that anymore. We live very much surrounded by our non-Jewish neighbors. Um, We're all kind of living together with non-Jews among us. Um, even many Jews who we may live near don't appreciate the laws of Eruv um, or don't you know, keep the rules of Shabbos. So it won't be relevant uh, to a lot of them. So, and in addition, 
It's become today, cities are a lot more regulated. There's a lot more laws and regulation and building permits and rules. So it's become a lot harder to, um, you know, to, to build anything in a city. It used to just be you did it and that was it. Nobody asked any questions. There was no regulation. There were no rules. So, so, so it became a little bit more difficult. But gradually, here in the United States, we started building Eros, or we started building this fencing around communities. And uh, step by step, um, it started in a few communities, and um, it's really expanded. Today, there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of Eros across the United States. Now, we've actually discovered that a lot of while today we have regulation making it harder to build Eros in this country, we also have a lot of built-in infrastructure that makes it easier to build Eros. So, for example, in Los Angeles, um, this is the west side of Los Angeles. Um, in the west side of Los Angeles, they built an Eros about, going back about 30 years now, the Eros is already standing. Um, there are as far as I know, there are five different arrows in, Los An- in L.A. County. Um, one on the west side, one in the valley, one in the north valley, um, one in the west valley. They just built one now in um, Caneo Valley, and there's also one in Long Beach, too. So, Where's the west side one? Not yet. Where's the west side one? Oh, yeah, what about a gated community? A gated community doesn't need an Arab. A gated community already has the fencing around, right? That wouldn't have a problem. So there are, and many communities around the country have all over, you know, cities all over the country, they have built Arabs. So among the things that we've, yes? How do you recognize it? What does it look like? You don't need to, you you won't recognize it easily. Let me describe how they did it in Los Angeles. So what they did on the west side is, when they were trying to build the Arab, is they realized that Los Angeles has a lot of freeways, a lot of freeways. And every freeway has a, is fenced off. Every single freeway is on an embankment and it's fully fenced off. So essentially what they did is they built an Eros that more or less runs from along the um, 405 to the west, uh, going all the way to the 101 to the north, and going all the way along to the 10 to the south, and between those freeways, those three freeways, it pretty much covers um, the entire West Los Angeles is surrounded by these fences, essentially. However, it doesn't matter what it's done, it's, it's, it's a fenced off area. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't matter why it was made as long as it's fenced off. However, there's a big butt over here. Um, however, there's, there's, a, there's a catch. There's a catch because even though you have freeways and they um, run, uh, they, you have this, they have fencing around them. However, there are roads that go under freeways and there are roads that go over freeways and there are also entrances and exits to freeways. So the Los Angeles community working with um, Caltrans uh, went and built... Um, the bridges going over usually are um, essentially gateways, depending on how they're built. Um, and, but on all the bridges and on all the 
entrances and exits to these freeways within the Eruv area, they went ahead and they built poles on either side with a rope or a string going over the top to create a doorway and that way finish off the fencing of that entire area. And so now that whole area between those freeways um, has been fenced up. It's already going back 30 years. And um, Caltrans has worked with them even when they did the recent 405 construction. Caltrans worked with them to make sure that even if, as they had to take down the arrows, they put them back, they helped them put them back up um, as they moved around bridges and the like and, and, and exits, freeway exits and the like. And so on the west side, they've built an Aerov and they've had an Aerov for the last 30 years or so, or 20, I think 20-something years they've had it now. And um, so they've had an Aerov on the west side. Um, they did a similar thing in, I know, in Long Beach. Um, in Long Beach, they also used the existing fencing. Um, the 405 runs through Long Beach as well. Um, it's a great freeway to have in L.A. So they have the 405 running through Long Beach, and the Jewish community is mostly east of the 405. And then um, they have a Long Beach airport, um, which also takes up to their north, which also um, has fencing all around the airport. And then there's actually a, um, there's a railroad that's fenced off that runs between the airport and the 405, creating essentially a triangle that's fully fenced off. And they have to, again, um, through the bridges and the exits, they had to create, um, they had to build these doorways, um, but that way they were able to fence off Long Beach in the same way. So doing this, many communities have figured out ways. It's, it, it's pricey sometimes because it involves some construction. It gets a little bit complicated. In some places they worked with Caltrans. In other places they worked with um, DWP, the Los Angeles Power, um, sometimes using existing power lines to help making, make doorways. Um, they used Metro for the trains. So different communities have used different, um, have used different existing infrastructure and then built on it a little bit to help build an AROV in that way. And so it's difficult, but it's doable and it's been done in many communities. In our community, we have um, toyed with making an AROV for some time. Don Zerlip, who's usually here, wasn't able to make it today, but he's been involved in our AROV committee for a number of years. Um, we haven't succeeded yet, uh, but we're still in the process and definitely would appreciate anybody who would... Don asked me to announce it, anybody who would like to help us build an AROV. Um, Don um, would definitely get, get in touch with him and he would... Um, he, he can, and we definitely could use more help um, in putting an area together in our community, again, trying to use existing infrastructure that some people in our area of committee have identified that we could use to build an area. Um, now, there's been, now, over the years, in, especially in the United States, there have also been problems with AROVs, right? Anyone who's been involved in local politics in any local community um, knows that every construction project in the community um, tends to have some sort of, um, you know, someone is battling it, someone trying to stop it. So there have been, I, they, some time ago, maybe about a decade ago, they had an AROV committee to build an AROV in Venice and Santa Monica. And, um, and, and some local residents um, protested. They were upset about the AROV committee, uh, about build, the building of the AROV. Um, uh, they had the Coastal Commission 
um, which had to approve because they were building within a certain distance from the ocean. Um, they had the Coastal Commission deny permission to do whatever construction they wanted to do. Their argument that they used was that they didn't like the idea of building poles and putting strings on top, which is what's commonly done. They were afraid that the birds would not see the strings and would accidentally fly into the strings, something that has never happened and has never been recorded happening in any era before. Apparently birds can see strings better than we think they can, and so that shouldn't be of much concern. Yet they were concerned. Now, this is also, um, in recent years, particularly in the East Coast more so, gotten into the news um, <coughs> in a number of places. And that is because uh, in many places, people protested the AROV. They didn't want to use existing infrastructure for the AROV. They didn't want them to allow them to build poles and strings over roads, which involves using public, you know, um, on a public right-of-way um, and needs public permission. Um, didn't want them doing that. Um, or didn't want them perhaps building fencing in different places. Again, sometimes needing public permission, um, using infrastructure <coughs> belonging to the public. And often they use different excuses, such as the birds won't see the strings and you might kill a bird, um, which may or may not be reasonable. But the truth is, and um, journalists have uncovered this time and again, the truth is that Believe it or not, we live still, as we've discovered recently, we live still in a country that there is still some distaste for Jews in this country. And um, there, dislike for Jews in this country. And there is still a sense of not wanting the Jews to come and take over town in a lot of towns in America. Um, it still exists, believe it or not. Um, what also exists... And so, and so what often happens is the journalists would go, it ends up making it to the papers, and the journalists, you could Google Eruv, um, and you'll see all sorts of articles from all sorts of different places, and it ends up making it to the papers, and the papers go and interview the neighbors or the activists fighting it, and they ask them questions, and what they basically say is, oh, we don't want these people coming into town. We don't want them taking over our town. And often it is um, Gentiles who are afraid of Jews coming in and don't want the Jews to come in because then, and they'll often tell journalists straight out because then they don't mow their lawns um, because Jews are dirty and um, all sorts of other, you know, um, anti-Semitic um, perspectives. What's also happened more recently, which is also unfortunate, is often the people trying to stop an era from being built in town um, were often... Jews themselves who are concerned that Shabbos observant Jews will move into town and they will change the face of our community. We'll see people walking to Shul on Shabbos and um, we, or people walking home from Shul on Shabbos, see people walking around with yarmulkes and that was of great concern. Again, they will take over our neighborhood kind of concern. So I believe that um, there have been dozens of battles, many of them that have ended up in court, over Eros. Um, to our, um, on our side, we have a federal law that was enacted many years, decades ago um, that does not allow local governments to discriminate, use local ordinances to discriminate against people based on race or religion. But the city council can still vote it down. The city council could vote it down if they have a reasonable reason to vote it down. If 
you could prove in court that it was discriminatory. In other words, the only reason they voted it down is because they don't want you guys taking over town, um, moving into town. Um, they want you people to leave. Um, then that's discriminatory, and the, a federal court, in theory, could overrule that. And they have in many instances. Um, and so I believe that there has been a lot of friction over arrows in this country over the last two decades, and um, dozens of arrows have been built across the country. Um, I believe most of the friction was anti-Semitic in its nature, or Jews that don't like other Jews. In other words, not anti-Semitism, but within, among Jews themselves, a dislike for Jews that have you know, other values that keep Shabbos, essentially. And, um, and I think it's, it's a common sense. Um, people often tell me, um, there are so many of you here in this town, meaning Shabbos observant Jews or people that go to Shul on Shabbos. And that's because anybody who lives here in this area every week sees a few dozen people walking to Shul every Shabbos in this community. And so a few dozen appears like everyone. And so um, many, most people I speak to are actually very happy about it in this community, thankfully. But both here, and this is more true in other places, um, often people are upset that these people are taking over town. Um, currently in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, um, uh, city-made ordinances not allowing non-city members to use parks because... Um, they were afraid that there were Jews. They saw Jews in the parks, apparently. And, um, yeah, Jews in their parks. And they didn't want, they didn't want, there were no Jews in their town. And so they made this ordinance, and it was clearly discriminatory, and it was struck down by the courts. And I think it's now before the Supreme Court, or it just was before the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court over, uh, held, upheld um, that it was discriminatory. But unfortunately, it, it really does exist in this country. Um, a similar thing is um, many people have trouble building synagogues. Um, or, I mean, there was a time in this country where you, there was trouble building Catholic churches. There's still Muslims have trouble building mosques. Again, we don't want you to come in and take over town. Again, it's discriminatory. So I believe a lot of the friction over the arrows is discriminatory. Um, nevertheless, we, there have been many arrows built. And uh, we do intend and would like to build one here, and we do have a committee working on it, and uh, would encourage anyone who would like to join. So that is our class for... Next time, show us a picture of what they look like. I've never seen an arrow. I just thought it was just a screen. You know what? You wouldn't see it. Unless you know that it's there, you probably drove... Sorry about that. You probably drove on the 405, I don't know how many times in your lifetime. You've probably never seen it. Unless you're looking for it, they're not very visible. So often one of the co most common arguments against the Aeroth is that it's, a, it's an eyesore. In other words, it's, it's, it doesn't look nice. It's going to ruin the community. Look, appearance. It's not, unless you know it's there, you will never know it. They're thin wires. They're made using in existing infrastructure. We've gotten really good at building aeroves in America. And so most aeroves, you wouldn't know about it if it existed. Is it wire or rope? Sorry? Is it wire or rope? They usually use fishing wire. 
300 pound fishing wire is the standard. Oh. That's what they found to be the best. It looks like a fence, wire fence. Do you know, they had this big debate in Venice a few years ago. Um, they've brought, there isn't a single case. Remember, there are dozens of these around the country, hundreds, if not thousands, around the world. Um, mostly using fishing wire just because it's the best material to use. It's, it's after trial and error, we've found that it's strong, it's thin, it's not visible, it's easy to use. There isn't a single case recorded of a bird flying into it and hurting itself. Sorry? Could it happen? Presumably not, because it doesn't happen. If it could happen, it would happen, and it hasn't happened. I had a bird hit my glass sliding door and die. That glass. Bird, we know that birds hit windows. That does happen. We don't know that birds hit air roofs. It went to court. There's not a single, they weren't able to produce a single piece of evidence that it has ever happened before. It's never recorded. Sorry, I don't believe they had one in Boyle Heights. The movement to build Arabs in America started in the 70s and 80s. So I don't believe they ever had one in Boyle Heights. There were no Jews there by uh, They don't have any in East L.A. now. They do have a lot of Arabs in this city. Uh, I believe there's one in San Diego. There's in Irvine. There's in Sacramento. There's in Palo Alto. I mean, there's all across California. There's all, every major Jewish community in this country has a, and a lot of minor communities has an Arab around it. Um, it's just a wire, thin wire, right? Right. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it it's a little more complicated than a thin wire. It involves a lot of infrastructure. Um, we identified existing infrastructure over here that we were going to build an aero, um, working with Metro and, um, and um, SoCal Edison. Um, unfortunately, we ran into a little bit of a block with SoCal Edison. They let us do some of the things that we want, but they wouldn't let us do others. Um, so we ran into a little trouble with them. But th that's where it's holding right now. But we hope to overcome that still, um, one way or another. So next week we will talk about why rush the funeral is our topic for next week. Why rush the funeral? We'll talk about the funeral in general. Yes, Mark. I couldn't hear the lecture, you know, the Holocaust survivor. I wanted to know how physically. It you know, I first want to apologize because I heard the sound was really bad. Yeah. Um, I was sitting next to him, so I didn't notice. Um, we're we've actually, as a result of Thursday night, decided we're going to redo our sound system. It's going to be very expensive. We're going to find a way to redo it. Um, and unfortunately, he's. A couple things went wrong. He was wearing a T-shirt instead of a, so the lapel was too low down. That wasn't working. That would make a great lecture here to highlight some of the things that went on during that period of time. I don't know yeah, I mean, I heard the whole story. I actually heard it twice. How did he physically escape? couldn't get How did he escape the concentration? He didn't escape. He oh, was, oh, oh he, he was he rescued was, by the Allies. He was rescued uh, in Buchenwald uh, at the very end. So he stayed he was oh, there until the end. Okay, he did not okay. escape. I thought he did. No, he did not escape. I thought he did. No, he made it to Buchenwald. Um, he escaped death many times. When we went to Dachau, I mean, that was, that's an education. It's just, you, you just can't believe what you see. And, 
and they made it into a magnificent museum. Yes, I mean, that was his point. So he actually worked um, with the Sunder Commando. In other words, he was actually... Sorry? For today? Well, whatever. All right, let's do it for today then. Next week I have covered, but let's do it for today. Thank you very much. Okay. Hopefully we'll get a bigger crowd next week. Um, so he actually... Um, Uh, so he was working this, with this Sonder Commando. He wasn't a member of the Sonder Commando. But he was working, cleaning the um, bodies of the dead. Yes, I got that. So he was a witness to a lot of the um, atrocities in ways that other people didn't see. Yeah, that, that part was very interesting. He, he kept mentioning that. I found that right. to be so very... He, so, I mean, the way he described... So, he, the Sunder commandos were the people that actually went in there into the gas chambers and hosed down the bodies and pulled them out, put them onto wagons, brought them to the crematorium, threw them in. That was the Sunder commando. They would switch them out every three months. We saw, we saw people for the half a day that we were there just crying. I mean, it's just... An unbelievable experience. Okay, I'll see yeah, you. Yeah, I apologize again for his for the sound. Well, you know, it happens. So, and also, his English wasn't great, and he had a very heavy accent. So, between everything, it made it hard. Yeah, it's okay. It was very enjoyable. Very enjoyable. All right, I have a question for you. Sure, go ahead. Jacob. He would give he would give a percentage to God. Ten percent. What is God gonna do with money? No charity. You give it to charity. What? Give it to charity. No, not to so he gives to God. Oh okay. The other thing is why years ago did they bring did they kill animals and sacrifices and give it to God? Those are God's creations, and they kill them? They give it to God? I don't know. Why would they kill God's creations and give it to him? Because he asked us to. It's not worth it. Oh, they only did it when he asked for it? I mean, they only... Well, he asked us to bring sacrifices. I'm hungry or something. Oh, God asked them to kill animals. It's a commandment, sure. Oh, they didn't just do it. They only did it when God asked It's a command, part of the Torah. Big part of the commandments of the Torah involve the, the commandments of sacrifices. No. Or commandments. Only when God asked, bring me this. Otherwise, they just No, we're not allowed to offer sacrifices outside of the temple, outside of the rules. We did a class, I actually did it, it's the one class I did twice about why we have sacrifices. Yeah, I think it should be clear, Judaism was never vegetarian. In other words, the Torah clearly allows for eating meat. It was never vegetarian? Yeah. No, I mean, there's a before Noah they were vegetarian, but in Judaism as a Jewish value, we don't have a problem with eating meat. A lot of people do.
How are we doing? Great. Can you play? Good. Maybe something was going on today. I don't know. Why a lot of these people weren't here. I don't know. Why? What's going on? No, I don't know. Because just a lot of people aren't here that are normally here. They'll probably be here next week. Yeah, that is strange. Yeah, it's just a coincidence. Normally there's extra people sitting on the back. Right. I don't know. So I think it's just a coincidence. Well, let's all bring more people next week, regardless. Yeah, or maybe they'll all come back. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Thank you for coming. Bring Rob. Rob's not feeling well. Really? What's wrong? Oh. Yeah, it's probably a lot of extra food. There's no mayonnaise. I know. I know. They didn't buy. See ya. Thanks. So um, Hanukkah starts really early this year. December 2nd. The 2nd? Mm-hmm. When is the That's on a Sunday, right? Um, or is it, is it the December 2nd? It's a Sunday, yes, 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 it's a Sunday. Is that the first day or the first, first night? First night, first night, Sunday night. Oh, first night. Having Sunday Hanukkah night. party again. It's oh, tradition. You are? Have you been to it? Are you going to invite me? Anyone's invited. I, it's, I a, it's a women's group, and I have, and, and, and it's sort of potluck, so I supply all the paper goods, you know, dishes, plates, cups, everything, and then they bring a, a dish, you know, just, just women, right? Yeah, sometimes they bring their husband, but they bring your husband, it's okay. Uh, but it's usually women, and we sit around, and this year, we used to exchange gifts. Last year we decided that there's a women's battered um, group, they're, they're battered women, and so we decided to. We decided to donate clothes. So we donated clothes. Tons of clothes. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, let me go back. We did some donated clothes to the battered women of Gudana uh, Beach, and they they take it to a police station. Lots of extra today. Yeah. 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 Yeah.